This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing, some history, some handicapping, and some humor. One of the things that I'm always interested in in general and enjoy covering in this podcast are the journeys people make in their lives. How did they get where they are today? Who did they meet along the way? And what experiences did they encounter on that journey? Those types of conversations are endlessly fascinating to me. This week, Mike Mullaney, who shared a very funny big score story with us recently, is our interview guest. We recorded this a few weeks ago. I initially wanted to talk to Mike about his role in uncovering the tragic story of Exceller. Fortunately, that horrible story ended up with a positive outcome as it helped fuel the, at the time, nascent thoroughbred aftercare industry. Not only did it lead to the establishment of the Acceler Fund, of which Mike is a board member, but it also helped publicize the efforts of organizations like Michael Blowen's Old Friends Farm, which has divisions in both Georgetown, Kentucky, and Greenfield Center, New York. Speaking of journeys, though, our conversation covered what it was like growing up in the Saratoga of old, Mike's experience working with journalists like Charlie Hatton and Barney Nagler, his travels across the country and across the globe, the Red Sox and the great, too soon departed Tony Canigliaro, and Mike's thoughts on what the industry can do to support the horses and people who make our sport so great. Mike is a raconteur and a great storyteller. Unfortunately, our connection got a little shaky when he was relating the great writing of Charlie Hatton, who wrote simply and eloquently when he said, Raisin native worked five furlongs along the back stretch at Belmont Park this morning. The trees swayed. <laughs> Who wouldn't be inspired by such writing? Nevertheless, I hope you'll enjoy our journey of a conversation. So, Mike, you grew up in the shadow of Saratoga, uh, and it's not surprising, I guess, that a lot of people that you grew up with got further involved in racing, but it's it's interesting to see that you know, study of a neighborhood and proximity to the track and how it impacts you know life decisions and life paths. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There have been a few people besides me who've made a career in it. Some have made a career elsewhere and kind of dabble in it. So there's a few people who made some money who grew up in that neighborhood. So it's, it's not a shanty Irish neighborhood, but it's predominantly Irish. It's McCarthy's, McMahon's, Galvin's, and Fennigan's, and it just goes on and on, Moran, McFadden's, and the Mulaney. But a couple of the guys I grew up with, they did well in other ventures and then became owners of horses and have had some degree of success. They've done pretty well. A friend of mine became a trainer, and I went into journalism because it was the easiest thing to do and also required <laughs> a less capital. Oh, that's funny. That's a good one. So, Mike, how is Saratoga? You know, everything's different these days, right? Um, but, you know, growing up when you did and the time that you did, how is the track in the town different today from when you were growing up? You know, I'll be honest with you. I think that the track is, uh, the city is, is very vibrant. I think the racetrack is, all, is extremely vibrant and certainly in comparison to what I knew. Uh, when I was a kid, they ran on Tuesdays and if they got the, 
you know, a couple thousand, they were happy with that. So the, the schedule back then was Monday through Saturday. Sunday was a dark day. Uh, it was a 24-day meet back then. Um, and uh, nine races was it. Uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't try to squeeze everything out of uh, everyone. They didn't, 13 or 14 race cars weren't, weren't there, weren't even thought of. And uh, I can tell you from a purely uh, myopic point of view, from where I grew up, uh, uh, we used to park cars on the neighborhood uh, in, in our yards. And back then it was a quarter. And now I think we're going to, if tra- you come around Travers Day and you, uh, you don't know me personally or, some, or you don't know my wife or family personally, you're going to get nicked for 20 bucks. So, so that's a major change from back then. There's one thing I've noticed in my day, there was always a lot of kids by the gate. We were too young to go in ourselves. We would jump the fence or squeeze through an opening or walk in with a rag following a horse. We would sneak in. I don't know if that exists anymore. And I don't know if that's necessarily a a bad thing, but it's certainly a bygone (laughs) thing. (laughs) And uh, so when I was a kid, uh, I think I made more money than my dad back then on a day-to-day basis. I would park cars for a quarter, go up the street. And uh, back then guys who worked in downtown as we call it broadway is a big business section there they would drive over they would uh run bets for the buddies the guys they work with they'd run daily double whatever they make the bets and they'd buy the program by back then it was the morning telegraph with the eastern version of the racing form and they'd come out and i'd ask them i'd say can i have your form can i have your telegraph can i have your program and they usually would give it to me and then i'd turn around and sell it to the guy coming in a little bit late and there's a whole bunch of money to be made there and after the races, the guys who were selling the tip sheets in the, before the races or through the first two races, those same guys would distribute the tip sheets from earlier in the day, and maybe they tweaked some of their selections, maybe not, but they would have us uh, distribute them to outgoing uh, customers, and we just pass them out for free. And we'd, we'd do that until they were, they'd left, and once they left, we just throw them in the garbage, and we had already taken their $2 off, them, and we'll go home. Yeah, as a matter of some consternation with my, you know, my parents, they'd say, where were you? Because I missed dinner. I'd say, oh, I passed out at the racetrack. Passed out, man. <laughs> so like, passed out, out. Right, Yeah. Right. <laughs> I would imagine the little tweaking involved in the, for the outgoing patients was we were a little bit more successful than when you were coming in and maybe you bought it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still remember them all by heart. There were like five or six of them. And I don't know if they exist anymore. I don't know if those guys are around any longer. You know, they, I guess they exist online probably. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a good point, right? And and everything's changed. You actually used an interesting phrase about, and I always talk about it at Saratoga, honestly, is squeezing squeezing everything out of it. I always say they're squeezing the lemon. It's, you know, 10 race cards, 11 race cards, six days a week. Um, it's tough. It, 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 it's tough, I think, for a, a patron, uh, you know, someone who follows it to keep up six days a week. And I understand uh, this is America, right? Uh Nothing exceeds like excess, so everyone's going to go get the maximum they can out of it. But it's it's changed a little bit, hasn't it, from that kind of almost country fair environment. It was a little bit more than that, obviously, all the time. But it's now it's a now it's a big operation. Well, yeah, I'll tell you, Bill. You you know some of these people. I, I, if you want me, if you want to mention their names, fine. But there's one I, is the CIO of the Deutsche Bank, right? And he yep he brings a cooler of six beers up to his chair, the seat he rents every year. And that's how he goes racing. And uh, his brother is on the Marriott board, and he'll he'll follow right along with him. My my, my favorite way of go racing at Saratoga, definitely, and any other place usually, 
is to uh, go to the barn area, bring a cooler full of beer, bring the in-laws, everybody else, the nieces, the granddaughters, or whoever, and they can actually smell a horse. They can hear a jockey talk. Jockeys talking to other jockeys. They can say hello to a jockey, and the jockey on the back set stretch is a little bit more relaxed, and we'll respond. We'll we'll carry on a, a small conversation. It's a wonderful place to watch the races, and it's not available to everybody. And it's a shame, you know, for good reason probably. But it, it's a shame that that's that's the experience that should be uh, made available to more people. So, Mike, you you initially studied journalism, I think, when you left Saratoga. At what point did you realize that you could combine what you studied and your love of racing? I, I think probably. Uh, Maybe my high school years. I have a I had a collection of racing forms from when I was thirteen. So I guess that would put me in eighth grade at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, there were there was there were a couple writers back there that back then that were just. Uh, I had a evidently I had a nascent uh, appreciation of the written word that I didn't realize. I certainly didn't articulate. And, and uh, it was through racing I was introduced to Charlie, a guy named Charlie Hatton. Oh, sure. Uh, a wow. guy named yeah. Barney Nagler, those guys. And, uh, and those, those, Charlie Hatton can talk about uh, Greek and Roman mythology and then talk about the confirmation of a horse and, and use phrasing that I, it was just to this day boggles my mind. And I, I do wish, I, I ended up at the racing forum for a while. I wish I was around when he was around, but I did catch Barney Nagler and he, uh, he was great fun for me. I became his personal editor. He seemed to like me a little bit. So, uh, so I had, I did catch him. Everybody talks about Joe Hirsch and he, he would certainly be, be one of them. But as far as turn of phrase and things like that, uh, Hatton was just um, um, mind boggling to me what he could do. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to quote it, but there's that famous paragraph that he wrote about when he first caught sight of secretariat at Saratoga, right? I'm sure you probably know it by, by heart, but he talked about, he, stood up in awe and then he kind of sat down in awe because he had never seen a horse so magnificent or, and, and I'm, I'm doing a very poor job of summarizing what he said. It was much more artful than that. Oh yeah. That was the horse he rated, waited his entire life to see. And he saw him as a two year old and died. So yeah. I guess he got his, that was his bucket list. So you became, um, it, you, you worked at the racing forum for a number of years, Mike, but you, you had a lot of gigs, both, inside other gigs inside racing as well as outside racing correct i did yeah yeah i i was uh, uh beforehand i was I, I worked did some work with the associated press then i uh went to the local paper the saratoga and i was there for about two years and i took a i was recruited out of uh gulfstream by a, a, a sweetheart of a guy a major figure in racetrack publicity back then named joe tannenbaum and uh, I was with Joe for probably about three years, and then he told me that uh, the guys at the racing forum were looking for a new body, and uh, so they, uh, I got set up for an interview there, and uh, I interviewed with, kind of, I sat in on a phone call between Fred Grossman and Joe Tannenbaum, and uh, Joe, Joe told me not to say anything, didn't want Fred to know I was there, so they had a conversation, and Joe said, you know, I got a guy here, Mike Mullaney might be Good for you, Derek. He said, Mulaney, he says, you don't have any Horowitz's, Grossman's, Cannonbombs? <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I went there, and uh, and I, I had the time of my life, and the guys I worked with were, I was the youngest by, I think there were three guys who were 15 years older than me, and there were about four or five guys who were about 30 years older than oh, me. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So uh, it was a it was a great time. You got browbeat. I got browbeat a little bit, and I but I learned an immense amount. And I made friends for life, and uh, a major it was like a it was like a master's program for journalism. Back then, it was pneumatic tubes, copy boys, copy girls, uh, pen, blue pencils. It really was the uh, that old stuff. Well, you're talking to someone. My my dad worked for the Record American and the Herald American in Boston for oh gosh, forty. 40 plus years. So I'm very familiar. I was a copy boy for a oh, while. Okay. I, I uh, ripped the sheets off of the, uh, the teletype, the, not the teletype, you know, the UPI and the AP wires yeah. and brought them out to the guys. And yeah, the blue pencils and all that. I, I used to tell people that back then you could feel the paper being made, right? I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> the, the rumbling in the building and everything. It was great. It was, uh, it was a terrific environment, actually. And that's, yeah, and like a lot of things, uh, computerization has made things better, but it's changed it fundamentally, too, right? It's just mm-hmm. time marches on, progress marches on, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got, I got, I, I ended up, uh, I think we were talking about Acceler earlier, earlier and, and that kind of, got me burned out a little bit on racing that kind of experience and i just uh from there i ended up going to a travel magazine for, for a couple of years and then uh then i drifted back i went to england and i i had a rail pass and i maybe subconsciously maybe a little bit consciously but i i had a uh um a race book with me and i just i i noticed i ended up going places with the head racetrack <laughs> so hold. uh yeah. Lo and behold, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I recognize it. Maybe it's hard to get away from. Then I went back to work at Gulfstream and uh, was there for another ten years. And then management changed. Some of the guys that were uh, fired at Calder came over to Gulfstream, and they had to put put their friends in jobs. And I understand that sports sure. is sports. So, yeah. so I ended up uh, taking a job at Yavapai Downs out west for a little while, where as a general manager. It's, and then, uh, and then I went to uh, New York State standard bread fund for mm-hmm. a couple of years as executive director of that. And then, and then I, I went to work for the breeders association in uh, Ocala, Florida. So yeah, I bounced around a little bit. Well, I mean, you look, you bring, you know, it's a great deal of experience and insight into it. Um, so I'm not surprised you'd be in, in demand. You know, Mike, you, you mentioned Excel and as you know, that was one of the initial reasons why I wanted to, you know, reach out to you and talk to you. It's an incredible story, and I know that there's a big story behind how you got that story in the first place. Um, and, you know, you and I talked earlier, uh, it's not that it didn't exist before you wrote that story, but I think it's fair to say that the story was uh, gave some impetus or gave some additional momentum, let's say, to the thoroughbred aftercare movement. I'd love it if you could tell us, you know, how you kind of got onto that story in the first place and you know, what happened to Acceler, what you found out, and, and how you ended up kind of writing that story. Well, uh, it's at the Racing Forum, in addition to being Eastern Edition editor, I was also National Features editor. So what I wanted to do was, the guys, there's 64, there were 64 correspondents. When I say the guys, I mean the ladies and the gentlemen out sure. there. <laughs> and, and, they, and it's like 64 personalities and uh some are work a little harder than others. Some need a little coaxing, cajoling. So what I would do for all 64, I would put assignments together like three months out. So we, we had, uh, I, I saw the, the horses that were nominated for the hall of fame. And I had one guy who's kind of like a lead writer. I saw Exceller as one of the nominees. And I said, do me a favor, find out what happened to that horse. We know 
the horse was at uh, Spendthrift uh, initially when mm -hmm. he went to stud. And I was a Seattle Slough guy, so I'm no no big fan of yeah, <laughs> no of big fan of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No. So uh, so I I asked him to to do it, and um, maybe he wasn't motivated properly. But after two or three weeks, he just got nowhere. And I at this point, I, I knew the horse was in Sweden, so I asked uh, someone else in the desk who had a real big interest in racing, asked her to do it. And she couldn't get far, the time difference and the language difference, and just tell me and all this. So, so I just kind of went on my own. I looked up the manual, and there's a thing such as the, called the Scandinavian Racing Bureau. What the heck? Let's start from there. So I called up, and uh, a fellow I talked to who I become, became friends with and still am to this day named Jorn Zacherson, I, I told him what I wanted to do. And I wanted to find out how the, ho the horse we knew went to Sweden after Spendthrift. It had fertility problems. We wanted to know how the horse was, where he was, uh, if I could talk to the, uh, the caretaker and or the owner, whoever's involved there. And, uh, and he, he said, let me get back to you. And then he did get back to me. And I don't know if he talked to the caretaker or the owner. I don't know if he did a little background check on me. But he told me what happened. And I was staggered by it. He told me that the horse went to a, uh, the butcher. I, uh, I knew I was, this was going to be major. And I'm already thinking about uh, who can I talk to past that. And uh, Yorn put me on to a, a lady named Ann Pagmar, who was the caretaker for the owner. And, uh, and he told me that Ann spoke English. So I called Ann. Gave me, he gave me her phone number. I called Ann, and uh, Ann walked me through a, a, a compelling story of uh, how she anguished over it for 14, uh, 14 months before she actually did anything. She tried to stall the owner. The owner insisted that the horse be taken to the butcher, insisted mm. on it. Mm. And it was all because the horse was infertile, and there was nothing, nothing uh, physically wrong with the horse. So she anguished, and she wanted something in writing and tried to stall him as best as she could and it got to the point where she felt she could stall him no longer and she did what the, he asked her to do and she was uh it was incredibly descriptive the story she was telling me and i i was staggered by it i still remember sitting in that chair i'm all slumping just my, my, mm. my mouth was probably wide open mm. so at that point i knew this was major and i had a I had a boss he was the editor-in-chief he's my one boss but i had a couple of colleagues evan Hammonds, who's not a managing editor at Blood Horse, and Brad Free is uh, a handicapper at the racing forum. They were they were they were not only trusted colleagues; they were friends of mine. And I, I, I was certainly at the racing forum. We had never dealt with anything quite to this level. I was kind of getting into horse abuse stories a little bit, but but not to that degree. So I I I I, I knew I wanted to run it. July 4th weekend, that would be the biggest uh, weekend, and I wanted to get rid of, put it in print as fast as I could. So I think we waited for two weeks, and we talked about it, and I sent them a draft, and they, I don't think they did too much with it. And then I sent it to uh, my, ed my editor-in-chief the day before what I had hoped to be the publication date, and he, uh, he, he went for hook, line, and sinker. He was an English, uh, Englishman at the time, worked for Maxwell, with what was the racing times, uh, and also in England as well. Mm -hmm. So he, he had, uh, he was okay with a story like that, but in the Annenberg years of the racing form, something like that would never have seen the light of day. 
Oh, interesting. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, huh. yeah. But but in the Murdoch years, certainly it would have. And, mm-hmm. in, uh, and in the hands of the editor-in-chief, it did as well. So we ran it, and I, I put a couple sidebars together, and uh, we ran the story, and it got to the point where my boss called me up and said, I need you to write something become just deluge with the letters. Mm. I need the letters to stop. So, and then, but the good thing is from it came, of course, the Acceler Fund and then uh, the momentum uh, for existing, uh, similar existing organizations was there. And it also probably created other ones as well. Well, uh, you know, Mike, uh, what, what was it that you wrote as a follow-up when the editor-in-chief came back to you then? You know, I, I, I haven't, I don't have my notes or with me or anything like that, but, uh, but what I noticed, there was a theme where, um, it was it was pretty harsh on the Swedish people. Okay, and, and because because Anne did have to lead that horse to the um, to the butcher, she mm. actually did it. And I I just didn't look at it that way. I, I, I I'm not Bob Mueller. I didn't have uh, federal agents behind me or a force <laughs> of law behind me. These people willingly told, told me you. a harrowing yeah. story. Yeah. And they you, you can argue maybe it's their guilt, and probably it was, but it was probably also a sense of wrong trying to right a wrong or at least uh, uh, mitigate it somehow. And, and I, I honestly see a degree of bravery in that. Yep. I always have. So, uh, so I, I think that's what I wrote about. I think I wrote about, um, you know, don't, don't kill the messenger stuff yeah. and the whistleblower act and you know, I, before it's day. But, uh, you know, the, without them telling the story, nobody would know nothing. So. Well, you know, Mike, I, I was able to find the stories online, and, and it was interesting to me when you mentioned that you were, you were not, a, not a Nick Seller guy. He, he ran down Seattle Slough in the Jockey Club Gold Cup, and you were a Seattle Slough guy, as many of us were back then. Um, but, you know, in reading the stories, you can tell, you can feel almost how much you were drawn into it as well, and that, that kind of shock that you talked about, uh, you know, Wow, I, I thought we were going to do. You basically started out thinking we were going to do a simple "Where are they now?" story, and then you find out that this horrific thing happened. Um, you can you can feel that as you read it. They, they, you really got drawn into it. In other words, well, you know, this is a sport that lends itself to stories like that. When I was at the Saratoga, I did things like that. I, went, I did stories being being a local paper. So I, I talked about onion who beaten secretary at night. So I did a story on that. Did a story on holding pattern who upset the Travers years ago and things along that line. But you know, as, when I was a kid, my dad had a couple books and one of them was the history of throwback racing in North America. And one of the, the vignettes was on a jockey named Walter Miller around the turn of the previous century. And he died, died broken alcoholic mm. in a gutter. And, uh, and that is this sport lends itself to to things. People can be people, and the horses, of course, but but people can be forgotten as well. They can fall on hard times. Nobody knows anything about anything. So I probably I had all the guys do, not all of them, but I had a lot of them do stories. I did I did several others myself, but I I didn't I, if I could have prevented something like that from happening. I didn't. It didn't work with Excel. It came too late. But with uh, but about Walter Miller kind of a story, and and it turns out there was a guy, and I, I don't want to drop a name, but he wrote Forgo, who was uh, who fell on hard times, was cleaning bars after last call. He mm-hmm. was the guy that went in there with a the bucket and the mop. Wow! So in the in the city, so I mean, there that that will probably always happen, and if 
if there were any turf journalists out there, that these kind of stories are easy to find, and you do a, a little bit of community good if you did them. Well, and I think it's important for people who you know are, are patrons of of the sport to realize that there's more that goes on. Uh, you know, they they'll they'll come in, they'll play their nine races, and they'll walk away, right? Um, but right. if you really love the sport, there is a way that you can contribute to it as well and support some of those programs, whether it's thoroughbred aftercare or, or you know, uh, permanent, permanently disabled jockeys fund is another one, right. Um, on the, on the yeah. human side of it, um, the backstretch assistance teams that I think uh, run down in, uh, you know, at Belmont and at Saratoga that Mary Lou Whitney is actually uh, very heavily involved in, particularly at the Saratoga meet, right? There, there's a lot of different avenues people who love the sport can take to ensure that the athletes, whether they be human or equine, that make up, that, that create the enjoyment that we, we love, you can support them. I agree with you, but, but truth to tell, I, I do, you know, as far as like the, 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 uh, rank and file, the folks that come in there and pay their admission and all that, I, like, I kind of think they're pretty well taxed plenty as it is, uh, by different things. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think it's something the industry should really be thinking about themselves putting the bill for the older horses and for oh, things along that line. Yeah. And, and like the, this, this disabled jockeys. You know, that fund. I have a, a lot of friends who are involved in management there, and, and they don't talk to me about this too much because if a for the disabled jockeys, they want to see you as they want to see your guild card. And if you're in a wheelchair, paralyzed for the rest of your life, I don't care if you're a union member or not. You're paralyzed for the rest of your right, life. So right, I don't, right. I don't want to draw a delineation between the, on that. So. Well, you raise a good point. I mean, you know, it's actually it's a really interesting point about the individuals who are already, you know, as you put it taxed enough and it should be a voluntary contribution but you know i'm just thinking about it as you and i are talking about it you see you know just go down uh, the list uh, take last saturday's fountain of youth right we recorded this earlier but take last saturday's fountain of youth and you look at some of the purchase prices of the horses that were in there and you know and that's just one example right that's not track management those are individuals but how much you know they maybe you know take some small percentage of some of those purchase prices and apply that to some of these programs, right? And maybe, and some undoubtedly do. Oh yeah. You know, but, but, but yeah. not as many as, as, as really should, I think. Correct. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a formula for yeah. it, but, uh, no, but it, it, it seems like without a whole lot of thinking, you just tack on more on the admission, uh, or something like that, some kind of a surcharge for the, the admission, but the, the people who benefit most from it aren't paying admission. Right. So they're exempt, somehow exempt from, contributing to the welfare of people who are people or the horses that put on the show. Maybe that's a little too radical. Maybe it's, maybe it's not, uh, maybe not, it hasn't, uh, you know, fermented long enough. Yeah. I mean, look, racing, you know, you and I were just talking before I hit the record button here at Santa Anita. Look, uh, this week, the track is taking some hits and was taking last week because of a number of deaths on track of the horses. And I think that, um, the sport in general is always one or two steps behind the perception of it in the public, right? And uh, the more I think those in authority in the sport would take steps to be out in front of equine health, uh, you know, what happens to these individuals afterwards, um, 
it, it's not just PR. It's genuine caring, but that genuine caring, I think, softens some of those harsh edges that the public gets when they hear, oh, you know, another horse, you know, snapped its leg today and was euthanized at Santa Anita. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I think you're spot on, Bill, yeah. So, uh, you know, Mike, it's interesting to talking to you about this uh, in particular because when I the first episode I did of the podcast, I told you we talked to Michael Blowen at Old Friends Farm, and you mentioned the Acceler Fund, which is still an active and vibrant um, aftercare organization. We we talked about some of the human ones too, the backstretch assistance team here in New York, in New York, and uh, the permanently disabled jockeys fund. What are some of the other organizations that, that you can think of that people you know should think about supporting um, as as part of their patronage of the sport or might want to look at? Um, I'll be honest with you, I think you covered them. Okay, all right. Off my head. That's rare. <laughs> That's rare for me to actually be thorough, but thank you for saying there, that. There, yeah. <laughs> there are local uh, local chapters, not local chapters, their own distinct uh, organizations, but they're more local. I think Acceler Fund's a national one, but uh, there are, there are. Well, like you mentioned, old friends, and there's, and there's an old friends uh, a chapter where, uh, near where I live right, right. in uh, Saratoga County. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I think they're around pretty good, but... but um, they're, yeah, uh, and I think they've all done well too. I don't, I don't think they're they're fly by night rackets. I I, I no, don't think there's I been agree. one instance of a bad story, which is thank God for that, where the the, the chapter uh, organization will pop up and it's re- really truly is run by people who care. You know, thank God there hasn't been any embezzlement scandals or anything like that. It's they've been true to the word on that. I think there was actually. I think recently there was one down in Louisiana that I read about, but they they was there. Yeah, okay. they they busted that person. But you're right. You know, Michael Blowing at Old Friends Farm, uh, and you're right. He has the uh, division up in you know your neck of the woods now. Um, he is totally devoted, and I always encourage people that if you go down for the Keeneland meet or the Derby. Stop by, you know, Midway. Stop by Old Friends Farm in Midway there because you will enjoy the tour tremendously. And you will see some old friends, you know. I mean, you really will see. You, yeah. know, you can watch it and see Touch Gold and, and, you know, some of these other greats. And it does give you a good feeling to see that they are cared for when they can no longer race and they're not breeding. Um, it's, it, 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 I think it, it how far away is... Um, the Saratoga division of old friends from Saratoga, you know, the upstate New York version, how far is it away from Saratoga? Oh, I would guess it to be maybe, maybe in the area of 10 miles. It's in oh, a town, if I remember okay. right, a town called Greenfield Center. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So easily drivable. If you're up there for Saratoga for the weekend, right? Why not take us, Absolutely. take us up yeah. and you, you can see some champions of the sport and you can see Zippy Chippy as well, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can enjoy the highs and the lows of the sport. Yeah. Uh, Mike, a couple of less serious questions, I guess. You know, you know, you grew up in an interesting area for sporting fandom, right? Because people's allegiances tend to be kind of split all over the place. Are you a Yankee guy or a Met guy or some other team? I always saw. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I lived. Uh, all the guys I grew up with saw themselves in New York. Cause I, I saw myself as a more of a New Englander. We just we're just 20 miles away from Vermont, or maybe 30. Mm-hmm. And in high school, we played teams from Vermont. And also, my sister was a nurse with a nurse with a team doctor doctor for the Red Sox when it was in the 60s, 65, I think she started. All right. So she, we got tickets to the 
six, my father and I got tickets for the sixth game of the 67 series. My brother was stationed in Portsmouth at the time. Oh, wow. So he saw the seventh game. So, so at least I was locked in for life. My mom was a Red Sox fan. My dad, I think my dad and my brother may have been Yankee fans. Mike, my, my already high level of respect for you just went way up when you talked about being a Red Sox fan. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I learned a major in Tony Canigliaro. He's still, yeah. still one of my favorite ball players of all time. Yeah, well, that was a tough break in '67 when Tony C went down. I, uh, I'll tell you a story. I remember, you know, back, you know what it was like back then. There were not a lot of games televised, and everything was on the radio. And I remember being up in the bedroom with my older brother. We're listening to the game on the radio, and you heard, you know, the announcer goes, "Here's the pitch," and you heard this god awful sound. I'll never forget. Um, oh yeah, and and this, you know, Tony C is down, and uh, you know that uh, changed that guy's course of his life. I mean, immeasurably and dramatically. So um, he had the world, by, but yeah, his, the world was his oyster, right? He was singing on Merv Griffin. He oh, was yeah. uh, dating movie actresses. Yep. He was. He had it all. Yep. And uh, you know, this is. I love when we go in these directions that are unforeseen. One, one thing I I like to remind people about with Tony Canigliaro, someone who was very good to him, who uh, not only liked to wear a black hat, he was viewed as a black hat, uh, was Al Davis, general manager of the Oakland Raiders. He um, was very mindful of Tony's care and his family, and without ever saying anything, um, you know, injected himself a lot into helping Tony in his career and through his ultimate demise honestly so yeah there was a hook there wasn't there wasn't there a reason why davis was interested i just can't remember top of my head what it i was. know i think tony c ended up being a sportscaster out there in uh in the oakland area I, okay. you're, you're right but there was i think there was some other hook as well um yeah the little research is involved or maybe our, our listeners can go out and do it themselves you know but yeah, yeah there, no, there was definitely a, a hook. i always like to just point out because people that we like to paint as demons you you just never know, you know. I mean, uh, there's the public perception we have of people, and then there's the reality. So, Mike, like I said, I really appreciate your support here and your your thoughtfulness, and um, hopefully, get to see you out out at Saratoga this summer. All right, Bill. I enjoyed it. You're very good at it. Oh, well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Listen, enjoy the rest of your time down in Florida, and uh, take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. All right. So, the millions of you who listen to our podcast each week heard our producer and my nephew, Ross Duncliffe. Share his tales from the mutual windows in our closing podcast from season one. Ross is a great storyteller, and I thought as a reward for all the hard work him and his team have done to put us on the air, we'd ask him to share what is a great big score story. The big score segment of our podcast is brought to you by your friends at Endeavor Farm on Old Frankfurt Pike in the heart of the bluegrass. Every big score has its roots down on the farm. Boarding, breeding, foaling, layup care, and sales prep are all services offered by Terry Nickel and his team at Endeavor. You can reach Terry at 859-509-7035 or email him at terry at endeavorfarmky.com. That's E-N-D-E-A-V-O-R-F-A-R-M-K-Y.com. Thanks again to our friends at Endeavor Farm for sponsoring The Big Score. How easily a big score can take us out of the hole and bring us back to the heights, Ross, right? That's exactly right. All right. <laughs> the whole indeed. All right. So I'm not sure if we ever established in the last time that we did this is that I used to be a stand-up comic. I used to be a road comic. And That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't very good. 
I'm kidding. Oh, don't be so modest. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You weren't it, good. It wasn't that you weren't very good. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. No, go ahead. There was a hack joke out there that, that a lot of comics would say, like, you know, everyone laughed when I said I was going to be a comedian. Now no one's laughing. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah, it was, it was funny, but it's like good. a lot of people started saying it. Yeah. Which, you know, it's the way. It all right. So all anyway, right. so anyway, so yeah, I was a comic, and this is right in the beginning of my road career. So you know, you, you become an open micer, you go out, you you, uh, you you know, finally you start to earn a reputation. You go on the road, but even still, when you do that, you're not really a full time comic. It takes a while until you, your schedule's so busy. And it's one of the best feelings in the world when your schedule becomes busy enough that you can't have a day job anymore. So you're like, wow, I'm a full-time comic. This is what I've always wanted to be. And um, the way it goes sometimes is uh, three months later, you find yourself looking for a day job again, whether permanent or temporary, because it's a lot harder out there than you think. Maybe I shouldn't have been so adamant the last time I told my boss to take a hike. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, so, yes, so it, it had been a long summer, and uh, I was on the road, but, you know, but the summer is kind of the, the slow season for comedy anyway. It really gets rolling in the winter. And by August, I was still working. I'm not saying I wasn't, but I found myself, uh, you know, needing to make about three, $400 before my next road gig. Okay. Which means that even though I was a full-time comic, I still maintained all my relationships with my temp agencies. Mm-hmm. And... Those guys, at least around here, they never had clerical work. At least, at least none that they were willing to tell me about. You know, it was it was always, it was always like, yeah, we could, you could shovel rocks, you could, you dig holes or something. You know, that's that's always the the, the kind of temp work they had, just grunt work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, fine, well, young guy, strapping guy, you know, like yeah, I could do this. So, and I used to do a lot of that stuff. I'm, not, you know, I'm not above any of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Sure. But uh, at that point, I was. Um, 28 in a bit of while since I had done something like that, you know, so, uh, they say, yeah, you can work, uh, they need somebody for about four days at Georgia Pacific. You're going to be making Dixie cups. All right. Uh, can I be in the big cup division instead of the small cup division? Yeah. Please? Just, yeah. <laughs> just a matter of pride. Yeah. You're not allowed to walk around holding a Dixie cup, by the way. You're not allowed to like, yeah, it might be a good time then. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, no, so, uh, yeah, I go in there, like, well, it's a Dixie Cup factory. How, how bad could it be, you know? Then they tell me I need steel toe boots. I'm like, all right, man, I, I've got, like, $90 to my name, and now you're telling me i got to go buy steel toe boots. Now I'm going to have 60 Is that so you can crush the cups with a satisfying pop when they... <laughs> <laughs> for, for fun. <laughs> I hate this place. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, I had to go buy boots. And they're like, now, we're warning you here. It's going to be long hours. Uh, 12-hour shifts each day, uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I'm like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me here. They're like, but we pay you for lunch. I'm like, cool. <laughs> it's $8 an hour, so <laughs> keep your 4 bucks. You guys are employers of the year right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wake up early in the morning, you know, Roll in, it's like 6.50. I roll up to the guard check. Why do they need a guard check? I don't know. But, I mean, this is central Kentucky here. We don't need a guard check for anything. And so I say, hey, I'm here to I'm a temp. I'm going to work. She's like, okay, let me see your license. So I give her my license. And she goes, okay, go ahead. And I say, well, can I have my license back? Mm-hmm. She goes, nope. 
They go, what? She goes, no, all, all temps have to uh, surrender their license when they come in. Okay. I I don't know. It, it didn't sound right. It didn't sound legal even, but. Just in case yeah. you steal off with the secret Dixie cup formula, they can track you down basically. Something. Man. Okay. Something. <laughs> God, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, but I can't argue. I mean, I got cars behind me. I'm going to be late in <laughs> eight minutes. So I'm like, all right. So I go in. And I mean, it wasn't that bad outside because it's seven in the morning. I walk in, and it's hotter than I would have ever imagined that it would have mm. been. It's an aluminum building. It's, this is August in Kentucky, so it's just trapping the heat from the day before and the day before that. And then the machines just let off all kinds of heat, yeah, because you know, they're melting plastic or yeah, you know, yeah. you, you know. And so it's just it's super unpleasant. Plus, you walk into the to the supervisor's office. Well, he's a big man, so he's got it's a little room inside the warehouse. Yeah. So he's got a window air conditioning unit, which of course blows hot air out to everybody else. <laughs> you know, extra added bonus. And, yeah. and and that guy, like, he steps on my feet to make sure I got steel toe boots. He's yeah, he's real subtle. And uh, and then he he's like, he tells me I got to get a hair nut. And yeah, but I'm bald. He's like, doesn't matter. You still need a hair nut. Okay. Any strays yeah. flying around, they want to trap them, I guess, right? I, I guess, man. <laughs> and, and just everything about like, it was very disorganized. Yeah. You know, they just want you to be doing something. And even if there's nothing to do, if the guy told you to go do something that's already been done, then you just have to grab a broom. You just have to look busy and sweep, even if there's nothing to sweep on the floor. Just keep looking busy. Oh, man. And it's, it's really like the separation of like $150 that's that's keeping me from doing what my gut tells me, which is yep. like, hey, I'm not doing this, man. <laughs> you, you, know, you guys aren't going to talk to me like a dog here. Yeah. So about 10 a.m. comes around. They tell me I got to go to lunch. I'm like, yeah, but I just got here. Like, doesn't matter. You have to go to lunch. I'm not hungry, man. They go, you got to take lunch. So I go to the break room. You know, they got a vending machine with some sandwiches in there. And they mm, only... Those sound tasty. They, they're, <laughs> they're real good. Yeah. You, know, you, you get... You know, bologna with yellow cheese or bologna with white cheese, and uh, white cheese is extra. All right, what's the deal? <laughs> and so I've only got a a twenty dollar bill, and there's no one else taking lunch. There's no one else that I could get change from. And I know that everyone else that's there. I mean, I'm complaining, but everyone else is in a way worse situation than I'm in. You know, <laughs> like I'm I'm only here for three days. You know, you know these guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that's it, a good point. It's awful, you know. Yep. And something. Like, well, okay. Well, I guess I got to go out because there's no way I'm going to go 12 hours without eating. Yeah. Right? Even though I'm not hungry now, I still got to go eat. So I drive to the, I get my car, I start heading out. I know this something's going to happen to this car, check. And she goes, "Where are you going?" I go, uh, uh, "I'm going to lunch." She goes, "You can't do that." I said, what do you mean I can't yeah. do that? She goes, "Temps aren't allowed to leave the premises." Like. <laughs> This isn't China, man. Like, <laughs> and I, I have to. She goes, we have machines in there. I go, yeah, but you don't take 20s. Like, I can't buy anything. She's like, I don't like it. But she calls her supervisor on the walkie-talkie. He has to call somebody else. He has to call somebody Finally, they say I can go. But they but they say, tell him he has to be back by the time lunch is over, which is, at this point, I've already burned 12 minutes. And I got to go to Taco Bell. But who's counting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, all right, fine. Yeah, I'll do that. I'm not going to do that. You know, so. I mean, at this point, I'm in a normal world, I would have just taken my license and driven home. But mm-hmm. I haven't even made my boots back yet. 
and I didn't and I didn't have money to buy those in the first place. So I got to go to Taco Bell. I got to go eat. Come back. You know, now I'm mad though. So I'm gonna like I'm gonna take my time. I'm just gonna I'm gonna eat as long as slowly as it takes me. I'm gonna go a little slow. And I walk in. You know, I, I took like an hour lunch or something. I walk in and no one has even noticed I was gone. I was never missed. And in the heat in there, Bill, I can't tell you how hot it was. I mean, it, it must have been at least 100 to 105 degrees, 110 maybe. Oof. I mean, it was. I mean, I know what 90 degrees feels like. like way, way worse. Yeah, far, far worse. And uh, you know, you're just drenched. Your clothes are sticking to you. My hairnet is sticking to me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and. And I'm walking around in brand new steel toe boots, so my feet are just throbbing. You know? uh. So I get through the day. I've made $96. I probably had to spend between you know, uh, my boots and my, <laughs> and <laughs> and my Taco Bell, I probably <laughs> spent 40 So I made like 50 bucks that day, and I, which pretty much seals the deal. I have to go back in the day after and probably four more days after the, a couple mm. more days after this until I can go back on the road again. I think yeah. I was scheduled to leave on like, you know, Thursday of the next week or something. So a friend of mine, Hunsley, Hunsley Albino, sure. you know, Blake Albino third. Our sponsor. Yeah, yeah. our sponsor. Uh, he's, you know, good friend of mine since I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was having some people over that night and we're just sitting on the porch and, you know, just, uh, just having some drinks, drinks and, you know, and hanging out. And I'm there, and uh, for the first time ever, I'm not drinking bourbon that night. I'm just there drinking water, just trying to rehydrate. And at some point, Hunsley notices that I'm only Was drinking. this in Dixie cups, or was it in regular was glass? It was in glass, like okay. a human. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still get mad whenever I go into a public restroom, and I'll see, you know, toilet paper, Georgia Pacific. I'm like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> You're not worthy of what I'm going to put on this paper. <laughs> And I'm going to put a lot of it on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, uh, and so I tell him, you know, I tell him about my day. I'm like, yeah, man, but I got to go back. You mm-hmm. know, the next day he goes, oh no, you don't, man. Like he goes, how much money are you going to make uh, these next couple of days? And I was like, ah, I don't know, four hundred. You know, it was probably more mm-hmm. like two or three, but I needed to lie because I knew I know he's leading me towards something, and I, I'm not going to take a risk here. Yep. You know. <laughs> He's like, no, no, you don't need that. He goes, I get a horse running tomorrow. It's going to solve all your problems. And he starts telling me about this horse named Sleek Hunter that is running the next day at Ellis Park. And, the pea uh, patch. The pea patch. And he said, it's going to, uh, it's a 12 to 1. He goes, I'm telling you, this thing's going to win. And I'm like, man, I can't do that. Bold. And yeah. And, and so everybody's drinking bourbon, and I'm drinking my water. I had some my, to my left hand there, and and my buddy Mikey goes, oh, I think Ross needs something to, to help him make a decision. So he he goes and gets a, a glass of bourbon and ice, and he puts it in my right hand. Mm-hmm. He's like, just just hold this while you're thinking, Ross. That's that's all we're asking. <laughs> so so, so Mike, I got two. Cups. Mike is the devil in this, basically. <laughs> they both are, man. There's never been one time that one of them has urged me to do something, and the other one's like, man, I wouldn't do that. I mean, they they they, they both are. No, yeah, yeah, and of course they get along great. Yeah, uh, and you know it's like that scene at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where you got, uh, we got two cups. You know, or, you, you know, instead of a whole bunch of cups, I got two. Yeah, you know, and I gotta, I gotta choose wisely, and I'm not gonna know until the next afternoon whether or not I've chosen yeah. poorly. And 
you know, and I'm thinking, you know, like, okay, yeah, it's true. I'm trying to make money, but again, I don't know if I'm going to get my check before I leave on the road. Like, and I need money now. Like, my feet are killing me, and I, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep eating Taco Bell for breakfast at 10 a.m. <laughs> so, uh, I start to raise my right glass, which has the bourbon, and the whole porch. Everyone on the porch is like, oh, oh. Is he going to do it? <laughs> I take a sip of the bourbon, and everyone starts cheering because they know now I'm in. Yep. Because <laughs> there's no way I'm going back in the morning. You know, I'm getting up at 6 in the morning for this now. So still drinking my water, but now I'm drinking bourbon. All right, I'm in. So next morning, I pull together what I have, which is maybe about 40 bucks. And if I lose this, I really don't know what I'm going to do. And I head down to Keeneland with the guys uh, for the simulcast. This is... Friday, August 17, 2007. This is the second race at Ellis Park. Sure enough, Sleek Hunter uh, does as promised, all right, and uh, goes off and he wins. Um, he paid twenty three forty to win and ten sixty to to, okay. to place. I think I did 20 and 20. So a little, little over 10 to 1, basically. Yeah. 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 Close to 11 to 1. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. I mean, as promised, yeah, I got about... About three hundred plus dollars, so my week is solved. I don't. I never step foot in the Dixie Cup factory again. <laughs> I was able to, to, to live the rest of my week and uh, you know you, you know go back on the road and pretend that yeah this this never happened and now <laughs> you, know, you know now I'm in a some bar in Ohio somewhere and you know like yeah maybe I do this full time yeah, yeah, I, don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't have enough only job. losers work in Dixie Cup factories yeah. by the way. <laughs> And the thing is, with that tip, if you had known whatever he knew that day, yep. you probably could have made some other money because the horse that placed all on the lion paid seven forty to place. So the exacta was almost two hundred dollars. The trifecta was over five. Yeah. So, that, so that horse was probably like ten to one as well, uh, all on the line there. So yeah, wow, wow. on the lion, yeah, all on the lion, yeah. So but you're not complaining either. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Absolutely yeah. not. No, I got my boots back. I could buy other boots if I wanted to. Anything that gets you out of the Dixie Cup factory and gets you doing something you enjoy. Yes. So, that's a big score right there. It is. That's a it big is. score. So thank you. At a needed time. Yeah. So thank you, Hunsley Albina. Yes. Uh, thank you, uh, Blake Albina, Albina Thoroughbreds. Yep. They uh, sponsored the podcast and sponsored yeah. a big score story. Yeah, right yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Brought to us by Blake Albina in more ways than one. Yeah. So <laughs> I needed it. It came through. That's a good one, Ross. Thank you. Right. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Joining us as our guest handicapper this week is my good friend, the unofficial mayor of Floral Park, New York, Mr. Ed Harvey. Ed, uh, we're actually going to take you out of your comfort zone this week, right? Uh, we're going to take you away from uh, the racing on Long Island, and we're going to take you out to Hot Springs, Arkansas, to talk about what looks to be a pretty sloppy, at least uh, in terms of racing service, Arkansas Derby, right? Yes, sir. Um, and we've been doing our homework as we typically do, yes, sir. Uh, thanks to you. And um, looking at past form, uh, Omaha Beach has a, has a, a form in the slop, uh, running away by nine lengths, Santa Anita, back in February. Um, and there's one other horse that ran in the slop, not too well, though. So, I mean, just from that perspective, you, you have to lean a little bit in the uh, Omaha Beach area. Now, but watching yep. the works over at Santa Anita for Omaha Beach, as well as improbable, and they, and they worked out a day apart from each other, and each one of them 
in the last two workouts anyway, uh, each ran the bullet of the day. Uh, so these, these two horses are primed. Uh, one of the things that many of the, the uh, journals and, and, uh, and journalists uh, and announcers have been pointing out is that with Improbable, who's, who's a fantastic horse, is getting a huge change with Jose Ortiz jumping on board. I think that is very significant. Mm, yeah, the, good the, point. Yeah, the one hole I don't think is detrimental based on statistics. Uh, so in the distance races, generally speaking, the whole number one produces about 12% winners. You know, the, the four, five, and six is a little bit higher. But uh, from a distance perspective, I don't think it's a big deal. Hold on, that's my dog, Duke. He's chiming There's in. Duke. There's Duke. Yeah, yeah. Duke, Duke, Duke happens to like another horse that he wants me to get to real quick. <laughs> okay. But, but, but we're going to hold off. So I, I think it's a, it looks on paper to be a three-horse race between Improbable, Omaha Beach, and... Um, and the Yasmussen horse, those long-range toddy. Long-range um, toddy, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, Suck I, 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 look, Suck both, outside, both right? legs of the Rebel uh, all run at the same time. I mean, one was a little bit yeah. faster than the other in the early stages, but they all ended up at 142 and change. Um, so it's tough to pull these apart other than looking for little things like Jose Ortiz, adding blinkers on Improbable and things like that. Now, Bill, you and I don't play this game to play favorites. <laughs> Two to one, three to one. That's kind of not the way we play that's, this game. Right. Bill Mott's got a horse in here. And I like, he's, he's the only real quote-unquote shipper who hasn't run at Oakland Park. And Country House, if you throw the last race out, and I have, because he was wide the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's switching from Saez to uh, Joel Rosario, who is one of the top jocks around and happens to be one of Mott's favorites. I think that's significant. And, and I think it's significant enough that I'm willing to wager a few banjos on it. Okay. And, uh, All right. You know, in the slop, sometimes you get these horses that, that you know, he, this horse is always coming from behind. It's a slow starter out of the gate. He's had dirt in his face. Now the dirt's going to be wet and it's going to be mud. But I'm, I'm confident with the change of the jock and the price, I'd like to throw my money on Mott's horse. So country house. That's country house. house. All right. Well, you know, you make a, a, a few good points in there, Ed, about, you know, the, the slop form on Omaha Beach. And, of course, you had the two divisions of the Rebel there. Um, what I find interesting about Improbable is the jockey change and also the the blinkers on. I mean, here's Baffert making a lot of changes, um, which, you know, to me indicates he doesn't quite have the horse figured out yet. Uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, maybe the jockey changes do more to just you know, Drayden Van Dyke's schedule, although that would seem kind of odd because Mike Smith sure made the ride out to Oakland to ride Omaha Beach. Yeah. Um, you know, Mandela is not one who's known to get a, you know, rush a horse into the Derby. So he's, he's a pretty significant entrant there and, he, and he's, he's run pretty well. But, you know, that one, and this has come up a couple times this Derby season. Here's a guy uh, who excelled on the dirt, you know, once they switched him over there. Why were they ever starting him on the turf in the first place? That's, I've seen that with a couple of these, uh, much better, the Baffert horse uh, that ran in New York a couple of times. That seems very odd to me. And Country House, I believe Country House actually uh, at one point was working in company with Tacitus, the winner, as you know, of the yep. Wood Memorial in your, uh, in your backyard. Yep. And I think from all reports, Country House was outworking Tacitus at that time. So, you know, there's that to think about, too. And Mott's wheeling him back pretty quickly. He definitely, 
He wants to get him in the Derby, right? There's no question. Yep. Yep, I, I, I like this horse. Uh, it's all about price, and um, I'm going for a price here. I like your thinking on it, Eddie. You, gotta, you, you know, the quickest way to the poorhouse, I think, is to, to be betting two-to-one shots all day, right? So, And we don't want to go to that house. No, we do not. No, we, no, do we not. like the country house better. <laughs> we don't want to be welcomed back into that house, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I wish you luck, Bill. All right, Ed. Well, good luck to you, and thanks for your support, and we'll, uh, we'll check on the results. Hold all tickets. <laughs> Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. That's great stuff, Ed. A little schedule announcement I want to make for all of you listeners. Our next podcast is going to be the week of the Kentucky Derby. That week, we are going to have Hunsley Albina, Bloodstock agent, and our sponsor talk about who in the field of the greatest two minutes in sport has the breeding to go the distance. An especially valuable set of information given the question marks surrounding this field going into the race. We'll also have T.K. Cooler from Wasabi Stables join us and talk about his betting strategy for the race. Prior to that, just to get you in the Derby mood, I will recount my own personal big score story from the Kentucky Derby. I think you'll like it. And, of course, as an aside, I'll also be publishing my annual somewhat irreverent look at this year's big race. We'll wait another two weeks for our next podcast. Preakness Week, we will talk with Cricket Goodall, Executive Director of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association, about Maryland racing and we'll also have a special guest who will reminisce with us about one of the legendary personalities associated with Maryland racing. Our final podcast of the season will take place Belmont Week, where none other than the Beast of the Belmont, Anthony Stabile, will join us to talk about his favorite Belmont stakes of the past and will help us look forward to the crowning jewel of the Triple Crown. That's going to wrap up our Season 2. We'll take the summer off and rejoin you in the fall with another great season of Can Do. Thanks for listening. Good luck with your picks this weekend, and may the horse be with you. Do this here in the Telegraph. Football Rivera fight. I hear his foot's all right. Of course, it all depends on the red. Last night, I know it's valid.